What is good, guys? Welcome to Top House Sports, where we analyze and break down sports games from the week, as well as our reactions and predictions from this past week. I'm Hansel Chulal, Kaden Matamit, and we have a lot to talk about, so let's get started. So we have the game of the year, the game that everyone has been talking about. The Bills and the Vikings, where the Vikings won 33-30 in overtime. And just what a game that was. There's just so many things going on. And like once you think that one team could have the win, just so many things could happen. And they all just happened during that game. But let's break it down that fourth quarter. Let's talk about that play. The fourth quarter, fourth and 18, Justin Jefferson makes an insane one-handed catch over the second string safety, Cam Lewis, to keep the drive going. And where do you rank this catch among the greatest catches in NFL history? It's got to be up there, man. I mean, he really leaned back with one arm and took it from a guy who was able to use two hands to try and grab the ball. And so that just shows the amount of strength and just overall capabilities that Justin Jefferson has. So I would rank this catch probably in the top 10 of all time, to be honest. All right, let's keep uh, some nominations up there. We have, of course, the famous Odell Beckham catch. And compared to that catch, I mean, Odell is kind of untouchable. That catch has to be the greatest catch in NFL history. The way he leaned back, grabbed it with three fingers, also had a P.I. call. But this catch from Justin Jefferson, I mean, in terms of clutchness, I would say this was more impactful than the catch that Odell Beckham made because this was the game on the line. This was do or die situation, and he just went up and he just wanted it more. But... He also kind of had help from the safety, I would say, too, because he also had one hand, and the safety also had two hands on it. And it was just more of who wanted the ball more. And Justin Jefferson wanted the ball more than the safety did, and he just grabbed it with his hand. But nonetheless, that catch was an insane catch from Justin Jefferson. And was there anything that Cam Lewis could have done to like break up that play? Honestly, it came down to the fact that Justin Jefferson really... like They both had position on the ball, but the fact of being that Justin Jefferson pulled it down due to his strength, I think there's nothing really you could do in that position, at least from the point on of you guys being in the situation of he having two hands on the ball and then Justin Jefferson having one. From there, I don't think there's anything else you could do. I mean, that was a bang-bang play right there. And I don't know, if you're the safety, you're more like... if Like, you would just think that, hey, like, it's a fourth and 18. Like, you had a chance for the ball. You could just knock the ball down. Right, but like if you're a cornerback, a safety, your 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 initial reaction, your intuition is to like kind of make that interception play, right? Because that's what you're like that. That's the play you're supposed to do, kind of. Like when you're a cornerback and a safety, when the ball comes to you, you're just inclined to catch the ball, trying to make that interception play instead of knocking it down. And I know it's tough for Cam Lewis. You're guarding the probably the best wide receiver in football, and when the ball is going right at you, you would you know your instinct is to catch the ball instead of knocking the ball down. But, I mean, Justin Jefferson, I mean, there's nothing he really could have done enough to you know, take the ball away from Jefferson because Jefferson's one of the greatest players to ever play this game. And when, where does Justin Jefferson rank in the NFL right now? And during that game, he had 10 receptions for 193 yards and a touchdown. Yeah, um, I say in the rankings right now, he's definitely got to be at least in the top three for your wide receivers. Arguably, in my opinion, I think he's the best wide receiver in the league, but obviously... There's other names that you can put in that category, like Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, Cooper Cup. Just the, the wide receiver talent in this league is really good. But the things that we've seen from Justin Jefferson this season, in a, in my opinion, kind of stick out. And so that's why I feel like he's kind of asserting himself into that one, one like number one spot for the wide receiver position. I mean, since this rookie season, Justin Jefferson has 
been progressing even further and further in his career. I mean, every year his stats are improving. And this season is no different for Justin Jefferson. I think right now he is either top one or top two in the league. There's no debate any of that. The lowest you could put him is maybe top three, like the third place. But there's no way else you could put him four or five. This guy has just been elite every single year. And the thing about the great wide receivers in this NFL, what makes a good wide receiver from great and great from elite and elite to one of the best is there's no coverage that can handle this guy right now. We saw him against the Packers week one. Packers like undoubtedly, arguably had one of the top defenses in the league in terms of secondary. Justin Jefferson cooked him for almost 200 yards. This game, they're playing against the Bills. The Bills right now, like, they're probably doubt, undoubtedly as the best secondary in the NFL right now. And what did he do? He almost torched him for 200 yards again. So when you're one of the best wide receivers in the game, there's no amount of defense that can stop you. There's no amount of coverage. doesn't matter who's in front of you, like how better the defense is in the entire league. Like you know when to make plays. You know how to get open. And Justin Jefferson, I have not seen a time where he has been clamped besides week two against the Eagles. After that game against the Eagles, I mean, he's been unguardable. Like, it doesn't matter where you put him. It doesn't matter what defensive schemes you put on him. Like, this guy is just somehow always open. And when even when he is covered, like, we just saw against that play right there, he makes that one-handed catch. He just catches everything. So he has a route running. He has the hands. I would, like, there's no, there's, you cannot put him lower than three, I would say. And let's take it down to that last possession. When one of the last possessions in the fourth quarter. So after that catch from Justin Jefferson, the Vikings get down to the one. And they kind of fail to punch the ball in right there from a QB snake from Kirk Cousins. But Josh Allen and the Bills, they are back in their goal line. They have the ball. They just need to get a first down to win the game. But then in the ensuing play, Josh Allen fumbles the ball on a QB sneak and it results in a touchdown from the Vikings. Is there anything differently Josh Allen could have done? Um, I think that the delivery from the center was really the main reason as to why the ball came loose. Josh Allen really never got the ball to begin with, and it kind of just, like, didn't... I, I don't know. I don't really know what the problem is. I guess it was just, like, a miscommunication between the center and Josh Allen. And in that case, you're so close to your end zone, you're just trying to get it out. You're not even thinking about the ball. You're thinking of getting the ball outside of the end zone. you got to get prepared and make sure you grab onto the ball, because without, without that, you're gonna, you're just going to get, like spooked and have an insane amount of rushers come at you and you would have beat getting a safety and ultimately it paid off being worse because they got a touchdown out of it and so yeah i definitely think that it was on the center for not communicating with um uh, josh allen for sure i mean there's not a lot of options you can do when the ball is literally on the line of the goal but I mean, I don't think it was a bad play call from the Bills to kind of QB sneak it, but I do agree. Like, they just had miscommunication with Allen and the center. I mean, we know Allen's a big body. He is probably going to be able to get at least one or two yards despite all the people in the box, but there was just miscommunication there. And let's talk about that controversial call right there with Gabe Davis on the ensuing drive to get them tied into OT from the Bills. Josh Allen threw a ball to the sideline for Gabe Davis, and we kind of saw the ball bobble a little bit when Gabe Davis caught it. Controversial call. I think it was a. Uh, I thought it was incomplete. But how big was that missed call for the Bills or the Vikings? Well, it almost made it so that the Vikings lost the game. Of course, they ended up holding on because of the interception. However, it was a clear drop. Like that ball, he did not maintain control of it as he was going out of bounds. So, I, I definitely believe that it was a huge missed call by the refs, and it could have affected the outlook on the game. But thankfully, the defense stepped up for the Vikings when they needed to. 
All right, and then let's go to OT. We knew that play. The um the Vikings went down the field, got three points, and let's talk about that interception from Josh Allen right there. I think Josh Allen. I mean, we know he's clutch sometimes. We know he also has his mishaps in the clutch, but that interception was just kind of it was just like a kind of a boneheaded interception. They had a lot of field left. It was only a second down, so they still had at least two more downs to go. And it wasn't like it was a do-or-die situation. They had a lot of time on the clock as well. And they weren't even that close into the red zone. There was still a lot of field to play with to get another first down. When you saw that play, were you knocking Josh Allen? Were you knocking the play call? Or what happened right there? Honestly, well, it would initially look as though it was Josh Allen's fault. The receivers downfield were really just not open. And it was a passing play. And so, I guess the, the defense did its job locking up the perimeter but i think initially the play call was not a good play but then coupled with the fact that josh allen slipped up and did throw a bad pass not even remotely close to one of his receivers that's just something you can't do while you're in like you literally are in field goal position and you can tie the game and heading down they had i think like maybe a little over a minute left on the clock and so they were maybe thinking oh we need to go for a touchdown we don't want to lose this we don't want to end this game in a tie um, better that it ends in a tie than in a loss. So maybe it's just on Josh Allen for not, like, just going for the easy plays. And there really was no need to throw it downfield. So in the future, I think that he should definitely hesitate and not throw it downfield. He also did have space to run, too. So it's, again, another one of those controversial things where you did not need to throw the ball, but he did, and hopefully he learned his lesson for doing it. I mean, that pass was solely on Josh Allen. I know maybe the play call wasn't the best, but we know what he's capable of. We know that he's able to escape the pocket. And we all hold Josh Allen to a higher standard because he's one of the better quarterbacks in the league. And when you do something like that, that just is unacceptable, especially if maybe that happens in a playoff game and now you go home from a playoff loss, right? Like, we, you got to be better than that. You just got to stay in your ground in the pocket. He kind of felt rushed on that pass, too, when he saw his pocket was clean. So he still had time to look for options, but he tried to force it in there. And Josh Allen, he thinks he's probably Superman because, I mean, why not? He could run. Like, no one can tackle him. He's making plays. He thinks that he's Superman. And, you know, sometimes he just has his flaws, and that pass is just unacceptable. But with the Vikings being 8-1 and one now, what do you rank the Vikings in the NFL? Um... Well, I really thought that this team was going to be special, not only because of their improvements within the offense with the getting the tight end, T.A.J. Hawkinson, having the complete team, having three players respectively in top five of their position on offense. We already know how good their offense is, but their defense has really picked it up. I think Zadarius Smith has been so huge for them this season in the pass rush game, and to have someone that you can rely on like that, along with the so, some good... Um, corners uh, like Patrick Peterson and then you also have Harrison Smith as a safety like this team has capable defenders too and so I think that this team I'd hesitate to rank them at the top of the NFC but they're definitely toward it and I, I feel as though they have their division locked up already so we'll see them in the playoffs for sure I think you can almost positively say that um it'll be exciting to see what they can do because I think they can bring an intensity that we may not have seen since Stephon Diggs's catch against the New Orleans Saints a few years back. I'm going to just put it right now after the loss from the Eagles where we're going to talk about it in a little bit. I think this win from the Vikings cements them as the number one seed in the NFC. I think they're 
probably my favorite to go from the NFC to the Super Bowl. I mean, this was a big statement win. And I'm not knocking on schedules because Eagles, I know they haven't had the hardest of schedules, but they've been winning games like they're supposed to. But the Vikings have also been winning games that have been against tougher opponents, such as the Bills for this one and some other ones as well. And the Vikings, they are now 8-1. They had a big statement win against this one. And I just, I just didn't see the Eagles being a big team yet. And, I mean, until the Eagles play a really good team, such as the Chiefs, the Bills, something like that, I mean, I, I just can't put the Eagles over the Vikings with how they lost against the Commanders. And for the Bills, now they dropped to 6-3. and three. And do you think the Bills are in trouble now? No. I do not think that they're even remotely in trouble. We know what this team is capable of. They did play a very, very talented team in Minnesota. And I don't think that they should be knocked at all for it. Because we know their capabilities, we know who Josh Allen is, and we know the strengths of their offense and defense. While they re- their record may have dwindled a little bit, they're still uh, well, they're still projected to finish into the playoffs. And once you get to the playoffs, it's a different time. Like, what single-game elimination, anything can happen. I fully trust Josh Allen to just rise back to how he performed last season and battle it out and I'm still hopeful that he can reach the Super Bowl still for me I think the Bills are in a tiny bit of a situation right now and they just lost the number one seed in their division now the division goes to the Dolphins and I think with the Bills their plan along all along the season was just to hold that number one seed in the division maybe get that number one seed in the whole AFC and then secure that home field advantage but now they dropped to the third seed with the Jets and Dolphins in front of them and I think now they just have a dilemma now where they're like, shoot, like they did not expect this to happen. They did not expect the Jets to be this good. They did not expect the um, the Dolphins to be this good. And now with the Patriots on a two-game win streak about one or one and a half games back from them, if, if they continue to slip up and the Patriots continue to rise, I mean, who knows? The Bills could drop to the last in the division, which is kind of crazy to think about. So for the Bills, I'm slightly concerned. They do have to start picking it up in the next coming weeks because they did just lose two straight games. So I think they're in a little slump right now. They need to get it up ASAP because if they continue to play like how they are, who knows, man. They I think they'll still be able to make it into the playoffs, but I think they have to play in the wild card round and they have to play a lot of road games, which is something that, you know, they that's something they probably weren't game planning against, I would say. Yeah, and speaking also toward the fact that uh, the whole AFC East is projected as of right now to make the playoffs... It doesn't help that, you know, the Buffalo Bills have to play each of those teams twice a year. They still have yet to play the Patriots, and I believe they still have yet to play the second game for Miami. And so I think, uh, and and I think New York as well. They have one more game against New York. But these are all talented groups of teams. And if they end up getting on the lesser end of these games, they can drop significantly because this is this division is so close. And so I, I agree with what you're saying, like, while I don't think that they're going to, there is a very high likelihood that they can. Of course. And let's move on to the game where we were just talking about, the Commanders and the Eagles. And I know you predicted this one, so you're <laughs> probably holding your head super high right now. But the Commanders upset the Eagles in a very shocking Monday night game where the Commanders won 32-21. to And the Eagles just suffered their first loss on the season. And for the Commanders, let's talk about them. Does, does this win for the Commanders give them momentum, maybe give them a chance to make the playoffs? I definitely think so. Um, this group is very solid. They don't, they aren't at full strength yet. Like we know, Chase Young still has yet to get back this year. Um, they're still missing a couple of pieces. Well, just getting back Brian Robinson, who's looking solid in his return. And so, 
this team, while I think that they have the potential to be maybe sneak into the playoffs, I don't think they're going to do anything notable. But definitely a nice young group. Like Taylor Haneke, we saw what he's done in the past when he played against the Buccaneers in the first round. Really cemented himself as a quarterback that's able to hold his own in this league. And now having Brian Robinson, Antonio Gibson, that dual threat, along with Terry McLaurin, reliable wide receiver, and Curtis Samuel. This team, along with their very strength defense, I think that they have an ability to maybe make a splash and kind of surprise people by getting to the playoffs. But anything more than that, probably not. Yeah, I mean, we did not expect the NFC East to be this loaded. I mean, you have the Giants, the Eagles, and now the Cowboys. They all have winning records. So I don't think the Commanders are going to make the playoffs, but I think this is a very huge win and a change of culture for them. We know that there's a lot of turmoil going on in the front office, ownership. There's just a lot of stuff going on. So I think this is a huge win for the players and for the coaching staff. And, I mean, they still need a lot of help, though, because I would say the quarterback play is not the greatest i know they have actually have a really great run de- uh run game with brian robinson antonio gibson and jd mckissick so that a combination of all three really great but i i don't know i don't see them making the playoffs but hopefully in the near future they could get a franchise quarterback in the draft to help them because they do have great pieces all around them such as terry McLaurin in the wide receiver curtis samuel brian robinson antonio gibson they are all great players in the defense they have just been stepping it up they're young they're great chase young hasn't even stepped foot i would say yet right no he has not so yeah yeah so stuff chase young coming back so this is a very young group of team. They're very still very inexperienced, but I think they're just one quarterback away from becoming a very, very scary threat in the NFC East. I agree completely. I think that their defense has really cemented themselves as not maybe not toward the top, but when healthy, probably toward the top of the NFC. Um, and their offense is starting to piece things together, like you said. Taylor Heineke is a solid quarterback, but maybe not one that can take them far. And so maybe if they were to... I don't know, make a trade, draft, wherever you may get a new quarterback. Just definitely know that this team has the ability to compete if they were to have someone to lead them. All right, and for Taylor Heineke, he did play a very solid game. But Carson Wentz has been injured, which is why Heineke has the starting job. But Wentz is projected to come back in next week, maybe even the next two weeks. So when Carson Wentz comes back, Caden, do you think Heineke deserves to still start or should Wentz come back and get the starting position? Um, well, I remember a point early in the season where Carson Wentz was playing and the Commanders were 1-4. and four. I think that Taylor Haneke has really lifted them and that the offense is kind of just more familiar with him because he's been here for longer than Carson Wentz. And it's no hate to Carson Wentz. He actually had a few games where he was produced very, very solid stats. But I guess if you're the coaching staff, it comes down to who you trust with your offense more. And trust not only in the fact of who you want to lead your team, but who your players want to lead them. And I think that is probably more so Taylor Heineke at this point. And so I think I'd give it to Taylor Heineke, but it sucks because Carson Wentz is a really talented quarterback. It's just, you can't start both. I mean, I do agree. I think Carson Wentz is the better quarterback, I would say. Um, Heineke, even though he didn't have the best of games, he still had a solid performance. And I just agree with your point right there. I think the players are more familiar with Heineke. I think they trust him more. I just feel like they have a different spirit, a different culture when Heineke is under helm. And I just think that the players are just more, like, they're more upbeat. They have more sense of urgency. I think they're just more happy to play with Heineke than Wentz. I'm not sure why that is, but I think Wentz is a a very starting caliber quarterback. He's very talented. 
And I think he's a better quarterback than Taylor Heineke. But with how the players are, how they react with both quarterbacks, I think that Heineke is just a better fit with this team. And it kind of sucks because once he's just been signed by the Commanders, he got traded to uh, by the Colts. I mean, he's just been moving teams from left and right. So it kind of sucks to see this former MVP candidate to just be traded all over the league. And for the Eagles, he suffered their first loss. Is there any cause of concern, or is this just a bad game for them? Because they did have three turnovers. Yeah, and that matched their season total. Like, before this game, they had three turnovers throughout the entirety of the season. So, as long as that it doesn't become an issue for them turning the ball over, I think they should be all right. But the plays in which they turned the ball over were very, very questionable. The Quez Watkins one, where you, you, you catch the ball, go down, then try to get extra yardage and end up fumbling the ball, it's... It, while the fight is there and it's understandable as to why you do it, it's just you got to make sure to secure the ball. Like, that's not a turnover that should happen to begin with. The Jalen Hurts interception, you could say was partially his fault, to be honest. That, But, like, you know, it's not out of the possibility that a QB throws an interception. It happens every once in a while. So I wouldn't really put the blame on Jalen Hurts. But then, yeah, again, they had three. And so... I don't think that this should be any cause of concern as long as they don't keep up this trend. So, yeah. Yeah, I think they were kind of careless with the football in this game, but I think that one big play turned the whole game around with the Dallas Goddard fumble. Yeah. Um, they The refs did miss a face mask penalty, and that resulted in a fumble from Dallas Goddard. I think that was a, re- a really big play that kind of changed the momentum because the Eagles were starting to put a drive together. They were able to come down, and they were about to score. A touchdown but that face mask penalty and the fumble from goddard they missed it and unfortunately they couldn't call a, a flag on that play so they just had to result the play in a fumble and that really just changed the momentum because the eagles had a drive going and because of a missed face mask call i mean that just changed the whole game around the commanders get the football back and they go down and score again so it was a tough break from the eagles right there but i think they should be able to bounce back next week and let's move on to the nba on sunday and that was such a historical night. So many great stat lines put up on that Sunday night. Now let's just start with the one that's just the most glaring right now. Joel Embiid has such a historical performance. He put on 59 points, 11 rebounds, 8 assists, and 7 blocks. I mean, that's almost like a 2K My Career stat line right there. But what was your reaction to his performance, and where do you rate like, this performance in the all-time? I mean, we haven't really seen that many dominant performances like this in the past maybe let's say 20 years like there was the notable 60 point games from like James Harden I think Kevin Durant had one and Jason Tatum too but to have not only uh, pretty I'm gonna say like 60 points 59 points close enough Uh, um, a double double though with 11 boards eight assists and seven blocks this is outrightly dominant on both ends just hitting on all cylinders his passing ability was showcased his rim protection was showcased. I mean, really just went all out this game. He was like, oh, I am the best player on the court. I'm going to play like it because I know that nobody else can guard me. And really, I don't think there is anyone in the NBA that can hold Embiid. I think he is the shock of this generation. And so be- that being said, where would I rate this performance of all time? <sighs> I think it's got to be up there. I know this is going to be like this might be worse, but um, a few years back there was a Harden James Harden fifty point triple double that he had. I think it's very similar to that type of stat line because of the fact that he supplemented instead of maybe missing on a few assists, he added seven blocks. And so 
just what a performance from Joel Embiid and the fact that those two are now on the same team. That's crazy to say. So looking forward to Harden being back and the 76ers maybe had a slow start to the season, but they're beginning to pick things up. So I'm excited to see where this team goes. I mean, this performance from Embiid, it's hard to highlight which like which ranking we put this in the all-time in the NBA because you have to consider circumstances, playoffs, stat lines. So there's so many things you have to consider. But if we just look at stat line alone, right? If you drop all the circumstances, whether it be playoffs, regular seeds, all that. If you just look at that stat line, I mean, that's literally three blocks away, two assists away from a quadruple double, which hasn't been seen since I think David Robinson. So this stat line, almost historical, like almost a quadruple double. So this has to be... If just in terms of just stat line alone, has to be at least top 10 in NBA history. Now, of course, if you just put it with circumstantial, yeah, you could give or take, yeah, it could be top 10, top 15, but just stat line alone, it has to be in the top 10 in all-time performances in NBA history. And the thing with Joel Embiid, right, this stat line is, just makes it even harder to decide which one's the better center in the NBA, whether that be Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid, right? You know Jokic has the playmaking ability, he has the efficiency and all that, but we all know Embiid has the more physicality, the better bag, right? The, I think he could also be considered as a better defender than Jokic. And this performance just doesn't make it any easier to determine which one's the better center because my oh my, like you have probably the best all-around center in the NBA with Nikola Jokic, the guy that can playmake, a guy that can rebound, a guy that can shoot the ball as well, just do everything on the court. And then you also have this guy with Joel Embiid that's just a forceful scorer that can basically play a guard in a seven-foot body, but also can play supreme defense as well. It's just very hard to decide which one's the better center in the league right now. And for Joel Embiid, I mean, this guy is doing guard moves in a seven-foot-two body. I mean, let's look at the plays right there. He's doing jab steps, fadeaway jump shots, right? That's a guard shot right there. He's doing one-foot fadeaways, right? He's doing one-dribble pull-up fadeaway jump shots. Like... This guy is a center doing all that. And then not only that, he's also doing drop steps, right? He's being physical down there. And then he has that one euro step on Laurie Marketing. I mean, there's just so much potential with this guy. There's just so much skill that Joel Embiid possesses. And I think he's going to go down in one of the top 10, maybe top 5 centers of all time. And let's move on to another player right now. Darius Garland also had an incredible stat line. 51 points, 6 assists, and along with 10 three-pointers. And where do you rank Garland in the best guards in the NBA? It's a little tough to say that because I feel like this year has been a little inconsistent health-wise for guards, let's say, or just the inconsistency of play. Like Kyrie, we know, is always to the top. He's not playing that much yet. Damian Lillard got injured toward the beginning of the season, just getting back, so it's tough to say that. But I think I, I could confidently say that if he's not top five, he's definitely approaching there. Not not amongst the likes of Curry, Dame, Kyrie yet, in my opinion, but he's so young, too. So for him to be doing this at uh, this type of level, like at this age, I believe he's 21, 22, somewhere around there. And so I think that the future is very bright for this young Cavs team. Now having him along with Mitchell, this just firepower offensively for those two is endless. And I think that they have a really good build because of the Twin Towers that they have in Jarrett Allen and Evan Mobley. Those two being defensive anchors and just lob threats on the offensive glass. This team altogether is just going to find their groove and I feel like they're going to take off once they all become fully healthy. But like you said, this I feel like puts him into the conversation for top five point guards in the league. And to say that and have a 
top five bona fide shooting guard on your team as well. It's crazy, man. Like, what a good move it was from the Cavs to trade for Donovan Mitchell, even though they did have to give up a lot of picks and Laurie Markkinen, <laughs> notably too. But I think it's paying off. And Colin Sexton too. I mean, I think top five is a tiny bit of a stretch for Garland. I mean, you give him like, I would say three years and he could definitely make it to the top five for sure. But I think Garland is definitely top 10, top seven, maybe if you want to move some players around. But he is so young, but his play, like I've been raving about his, his style of play in previous episodes. I mean, I just love how he is so crafty with the basketball, so shifty. I don't think anyone could really guard him. I would say he's probably the top, Five, maybe top three shiftiest guards in the whole league right now. I mean, his handle is very insane. And we saw his playmaking ability, one of the best in the NBA. But that 51 performance, I was honestly pretty surprised because I know he's able to score the ball at some points in his time. But I thought he was just more of that pass for his point guard. But without Donovan Mitchell, I mean, we just see what he can do if he has the mentality to score. 10 three-pointers on the night, and those three-pointers were not easy ones in the fourth quarter. I mean, he was doing step-back three-pointers, long three-pointers. I mean, his bag is insane. And, I mean, he, I just definitely have nothing else to say. I mean, I've already been raving about his game, and he just keeps solidifying my point. He's going to be a very special guy in this league, and give him three years, he's going to be top five in the league for sure. And like you said, it shows the offensive capabilities if Donovan Mitchell were to be absent. I can't imagine what this team's going to be like when they're together. Like, they, they've they kind of had offsetting injuries. have really haven't been able to play more than maybe one or two games with each other. But, man, that might become, like, the best backcourt duo in the NBA very well. Oh, definitely. I mean, come playoff time, right? We have players like Donovan Mitchell who comes up big in the clutch. But when Mitchell doesn't perform in the playoffs, now, like, Mitchell now has support in his team that can also carry that offensive firepower with now Darius Garland who can now put up 20-30 points every night and in the clutch we've seen what he can do in that fourth quarter he scored like over what 25 points in the fourth quarter so he we know he's able to backpack a team in the clutch as well so when Mitchell might not be on the top of his game we know now that Mitchell does not have to do everything on his own because Garland could also step up the load offensively and let's move on to our last player, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, on Sunday against the Knicks, had a 37 points, 5 rebounds, and 8 assists. I mean, do you think he can lead the Thunder to the playoffs this year? I think it'll be tough because they don't have Chet Holmgren right now, and he was a very big piece to be paired with the likes of Josh Giddey and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Um, I think that they have the capabilities. Watching this team play, I, I watched the full game yesterday between the, the Thunder and the Celtics. They were leading for a great, great majority of that game. And it wasn't until Marcus Smart really started to make an outstanding effort into bringing his team back that they were dominating out there. And I'm, I'm saying like the likes of uh, Jalen Williams. I, I believe he had around like 18 points, really starting to solidify himself in that starting forward role. Um, along with, of course, Shea, who you just said had the same. Like he's been doing this all season too, which is insane to say like he is really just I, I like a different type of player like i saw him getting guarded by jalen brown and really his length stood out and he was able to finish over not only brown but really the Celtics defenders in general so i'm really liking the offensive power for this team maybe have to solve some things out on the defensive end if they wanted to make the playoffs but for now, this is a very, very young group. So anything that they can do, any experience that they can get will be pivotal for them. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that the Thunder were trying to trade this guy in the offseason. I mean, this guy has solidified himself as the cornerstone of this franchise right now. And when you look at the seating and the standings right now, although they are, what, 6-6, six and six, from the team's number 7 all the way down to 13 where they're at right now, all of them are 6-6 six and six or 6-7, six 6-8. and seven, six and eight. So they're very interchangeable. Give, like All teams right now are about one to two games apart. So if the Thunder could win like maybe two in a row, three in a row, they could jump from 13th to like maybe eight or seven. So if Shake could somehow get this team into the playoffs, I think he has to be in the MVP conversation because this guy has been impressing all along. And every year he's been in the league, he's been improving, improving, and improving. This season, he's averaging 31.5 points per game, 4.4 rebounds, 5.8 assists, along with 2.1 steals and 1.5 blocks. So not only is he getting it done offensively, as we've been seeing, defensively, he's using his lane to great use as well. I mean, 2.1 steals a game, not a lot of players in the league can say that. And with his array of skills, right, the way he dribbles the basketball, the way he's so long, you can't have smaller guards on him because he could just bully him, get into the lane, and finish. He has great touch around the rim, but if you put a taller, longer guy on him, He's able to blow by him because he's really shifty. He's really crafty as well. And he's very explosive on the drive. So Shea, he could honestly solidify himself as an MVP candidate if the Thunder are dared to play in tournament. And that's all we have for today. And for more episodes, check out Top House Sports on Spotify. I'm House of Chill, always Kitty Matemid, and we'll see you next time.